Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lavanya Vimsani. She is a professor uh, uh, in the Department of History at Shawnee State University. We get to speak about a really fascinating uh, new piece of scholarship called Feminine Journeys of the Mahabharata, Hindu Women in History, Text, and Practice. It is a brand new 2021 uh, publication by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, Lavanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Raj, for having me today. I am really looking forward to speaking with you about the book. I'm great. I'm glad that you are. Most of my guests dread having to speak to me about their books. No, I'm teasing. You're um, you're you're excited about this publication, and so you should be. Um, can you tell us a bit about your journey towards the feminine journeys of the Mahabharata? How did this enterprise begin for you? Um, it's really hard to pinpoint. Um, as you know, uh, for anyone growing up in India, it's hard to know when you first heard Mahabharata stories. And it's even well, more uh, hard. You, ha- you, have to state, you have to state the famous quote uh, from Ramanujan that many of our lay audience may not know that no one hears the, the Mahabharata <laughs> for the first time, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is... <laughs> exactly. So... So I don't know when I first heard Damayanti, when I first heard Shakuntala, you know, I, when I first heard Kunti, you know. So, so I heard and I heard them many, many times, and they so much so that they're part of my life. You know, when I read them, it almost seems like I know them. Uh, it's that much. Uh, but, but more recently, though, uh, I taught a course at McMaster University in the Department of Comparative Literatures. Uh, it's called 2MO3 uh, Asian Literatures. Um, so for that, I actually examined uh, journeys of uh, women from number of texts, classical literatures from Asia. So this actually gave me a chance to examine the women's stories, women's journeys closely uh, and organize what I was thinking. Uh, so I would say uh, the real beginnings, I don't know. But uh, the research beginnings, uh, of course, I'll point to my course uh, at McMaster University. So 
So that was the beginning, but it took many years though. So their journeys were difficult. Uh, and my journey to write this book also took a long time. The, the thoughts to come together and form a book uh, uh, took a long time too. Yes, well, you know, much like the Mahabharata, sometimes gestations are much longer than others, right? Um, uh, there's so many, there's so many um, points of entry for this conversation. Um, uh, why don't you tell us, uh, uh, in terms of method or data, you're, you're primarily looking at narrative from the critical edition of the Mahabharata, correct? Or what else are you looking at? Yes, uh, I am primarily looking at the critical edition of the Mahabharata. Uh, and I also used the Vulgate uh, uh, for, the, for some of the chapters uh, because there was more data. You know, for example, Draupadi, some data was cut uh, in the critical edition, but Vulgate had all that. So, so critical edition a lot. Uh, and I also used the Vulgate edition a lot. Uh, and uh, even though I checked the original Sanskrit text, uh, I used the translations as quotations in my book. So I used one of the early translations, you know, the Rai uh, translations and, um, you know, the translations most commonly available uh, for quotations in the textbook. For And so tell us about the, the, the layout of the book. Which uh, figures do you look at? Um, there are 11... Uh, feminine um, heroics as well as feminine divine that I'll study in this book. Um, I begin with uh, Satyavati uh, as the matriarch uh, and they are, then go on uh, with others, uh, Kunti, Draupadi, uh, Savitri, uh, Damayanti, um, uh, Amba. Um, so uh, Urvashi, and uh, probably one of the least studied, I would say, is Madhavi that I attempted in this book. Uh, Madhavi was uh, sometimes mentioned, but only her first half of life is noted by anybody. The second half is not noted. So I, I tried to take up her story also along with the others. So, so there are 11 uh, stories, 11 journeys of women feminine heroics, uh, feminine leaders, uh, in addition to the conclusion and uh, introduction. So I have a tendency of asking um, 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 consciously naive questions. Hopefully my audience knows that they're consciously naive, or um, maybe you think I'm, 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 I'm not very informed at all. But why is this book important? You know, what's, what's new exciting about this book? Where does it fit into, into your subfield of Mahabharata studies? It fits in the Mahabharata studies um, by focusing exclusively on one aspect, the feminine. Of course, there are studies focusing on feminine. You know, um, there is Draupadi, there is um, Kunti, there are, um, you know, studies on feminine. Uh, of course, Ganga. But... Uh, a comprehensive examination that uh, undertakes a study of more than 10 women 
uh, of different walks of life um, is not there. Uh, that's one thing. And secondly, uh, in the last 50 years, um, the media, academia, the modernity, uh, the focus was more on um, male perspectives, male perceptions. Um, even though the feminine stories, female stories were analyzed, uh, they are analyzed from a male perspective. For example, the feminine divine as well as feminine leaders are seen as, uh, from the utilitarian perspective, as um, spouse goddesses, spouses or uh, mother. So uh, a useful part of uh, a, a man's life. Of course, that's nothing wrong you know it was common in those days um, so that only brought out a partial understanding uh, of the women's journeys because it gave them these categorizations uh, calling them spouse goddesses or our um, um, derogatory names you know tooth goddesses or breast goddesses you know so <laughs> If the names are derogatory, of course, the studies are going to be also derogatory. So um, uh, that was there, the categorizations and uh, um, early studies, you know, being partial. Um, in addition, uh, they attempted to read only certain uh, feminine, not all of them. Uh, and they also attempted to read uh, only part of the life uh, of the feminine rather than a holistic uh, understanding. Uh, and it also uh, did not use uh, the Indian philosophical and cultural understanding. Um, for example, personhood, uh, according to Indian philosophy, is a blend uh, of masculine and feminine. The feminine expression uh, is uh, the is seen more as uh, nurturing, happy, and uh, in sync with nature. Uh, masculine expression, uh, of course, seen differently. Uh, but uh, the feminine expression and masculine expression uh, is found differently uh, in different uh, feminine uh, heroics that we examined in this book. So it actually gives us uh, an opportunity to see the stories and the journeys of women uh, in, in, a, in a long uh, and comparative perspective. And it also allows us uh, to see um, in an Indian sense of the expression of the feminine. Uh, rather than seeing them just as females, just as sexualized, utilitarian subjects of study, uh, like like the spouses or mothers. You make a number of, of points there in terms of how your approach or your methodology is different uh, than previous scholarship. Just to flesh this out a bit, so when you're looking at the the a particular female figure, Kunti or, or uh, whomever, um, um, you are looking at the life story, are you not? You're looking at the arc of that character as a whole versus let's understand Gandhari through the 
blindfold related to her husband. Let's understand uh, Draupadi through this terrible scene in the assembly. I'm not trying to put words into your mouth. I'm hoping to bring them out of your mouth (laughs) because I think you're a bit modest in terms of of, of what's um, original about what you're doing. So correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously I'm, I'm not very well read in Hindu studies. (laughs) (laughs) Neither narrative, neither the Mahabharata, but uh, um, you were looking at the the narrative, uh, the the, the arc of the the character in the Mahabharata as a whole, correct? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, go on. uh So I take the life of um, heroic and then study her life uh, from her birth and to the end of her life, uh, when she takes, um, most of the time, many of these women lived a fulfilling life and they took um, sannyasa. So I study, beginning with the birth, uh, up until the sannyasa, how it went. So it's an exploration of femininity, uh, how it is expressed in uh, each of their stories, each of their journey. Uh, not in just one part, but uh, total journey of their life. So, um, for example, the journeys show different aspects of femininity. Even though the generalized idea of femininity is, uh, feminine is playful, simple, happy, uh, as well as forgiving. Uh, However, we see the different aspects in uh, each one of the stories. Um, The pure and simple feminine nature uh, is seen in the stories of Shakuntala and uh, Damayanti, which is sustained even after numerous travels. They, they go through the forest, they go through a number of difficulties, but still remain to be simple uh, feminine, unlike others. Uh, for example, in the story of Draipadi, we see the fiery feminine nature. Uh, and the feminine nature that went beyond the feminine uh, to embrace the masculine uh, is seen in the case of Amba, right? She she forgets her femininity uh, in her anger uh, and then embraces masculinity uh, to to take her revenge. So so that's also an expression uh, we see here. Uh, And the feminine that embraces and forgives everyone and everything. Uh, as we see in the case of Ganga and Kunti. Both of them are the mothers, the quintessential mothers of the Mahabharata. Uh, And the feminine uh, heroics were um, depicted as uh, human, but at the same time, they also defeat uh, the physical limitations. Uh, For example, uh, Savitri and uh, Madhavi. Uh, Savitri is a simple uh, feminine. Uh, however, she makes her own choices and she's even able to follow Yama to his world. Uh, and femi- finally, uh, the divine feminine, uh, Subhadra, uh, she is multifaceted goddesses, goddess. She has three different forms and you know they all fuse together in her. Um, and, and of course, we have Satyavati. Uh, she is completely human, surrounded by all these divine feminine and divine, uh, semi-divine heroics. Uh, however, she is the 
strongest survivor uh, and she is the representative of the feminine uh, sheer perseverance and uh, strong woman of all uh, even though she is simple uh, she comes from humble beginnings and remains simple uh, but uh, satyavati remains you know one of the very interesting characters of the mahabharata so each one of them uh, show five stages in life uh, and each stage uh, shows their uh, development and then how they uh, became what they are and how they supported uh, their partners um, so uh, except for the divine uh, divine feminine of course uh, subhadra and ganga doesn't show uh, typical stages like all these others but Uh, all of them show different aspects and expressions of the feminine um, and that's what uh, is the uh, goal of this uh, study you know that's the central focus of this study uh, how the feminine is expressed uh, through their life to the through the stories of their life you mentioned at the outset and passing that something that disambiguates that separates uh-huh. uh, this work methodologically pertains to um gender and gender studies could you say a bit more about that um gender um of course i told you uh, in in indian philosophy indian understanding um the the spirit the personhood uh, as well as the body are different expressions uh, of life um the the personhood uh, is a combination of masculine and feminine uh, and the di- the expression of which uh, might differ uh, and the body of course uh, is an accumulation of uh, food so it's called anamaya kosha you know the five sacs that form the person but the inner spirit uh, is formed by the masculine and feminine aspects they are in everybody every person the personhood uh, of course is within everybody so the feminine expression uh, as part of the gender studies the feminine expression as part of the female leaders uh, journeys uh, forms part of this study that is one aspect but the second part is how the feminine of course might also change the expression Uh, might also become different you know the feminine becomes uh, submissive uh, as amba um, looks to achieve her goal she becomes more masculine uh, in her goal um, and she is of course pushed into a corner because her opponent is you know bishma bishma refuses to engage with women in any way <laughs> no war no marriage no <laughs> doesn't <laughs> uh, he doesn't even want to speak you know when uh, draupadi was disrobed um, people ask him to respond but he doesn't respond he doesn't want to involve himself in any way uh, with women of course he brought uh, you know the amba from uh, from her swayamvara but other than that he doesn't want to directly involve himself uh, in any way with uh, women So I so Amba uh, of course she has her feminine expression she loved somebody she want to marry him she want to have a good life but it was all ruined uh, because of what uh, Bhishma inadvertently did there is no way to go back on it uh, so she chooses to fight it out 
So in her search to fight it out, uh, she has to forget her femininity uh, and embrace uh, masculinity, which was very difficult. Uh, she is she ha- takes undertakes uh, many asceticisms in this life, takes help from grandfather, takes from Parashurama to fight uh, Bhishma doesn't work, and then takes asceticism and gets curse from Ganga. A uh, lot of difficulties. I I'm so sad for Amba, you know. <laughs> She was yanked out of her Swayamvara and then there is no recourse to her. <laughs> and uh, I sympathize with her, you know, and uh, and giving up her femininity uh, and to embrace masculinity uh, so that uh, she can fight uh, Bhishma. Of course, even in the end, you know, she, she takes another birth uh, and then... Um, um, with the blessings of Shiva, she was able to, you know, uh, be born to a family that uh, supported her, uh, that actually raised her as a man, uh, taught her all the uh, you know, arts and crafts of warfare. Uh, so uh, she was able to live as a masculine person, even though she is born as a woman. So this is where it shows us clearly. You know, that the feminine uh, is not expressed in case of Shikandin. The masculine is expressed right from his second birth, uh, from her from her second birth. It's masculine. Anyway, she changes her gender in the later part of her life, after her marriage. You know, her wife complains, so then she goes and exchanges her gender with, uh, with a yaksha. That's the, so. Uh, anyway, when he comes back, of course, the family had already raised him as a man uh, and accepted his masculinity. So for them, it's not a problem. But uh, others probably it took a little bit of time uh, to accept him. Uh, and Bhishma, of course, refuses to engage with him on the battlefield. Uh, but uh, everyone else accepted him very openly. Krishna actually drove him uh, into the battlefield, which is you know, considered as one of the honors. He drove the greatest uh, warrior, Arjuna, and then the other person that was driven in the chariot was uh, um, Shikandin. Uh, and uh, Bhishma, of course, uh, falls uh, because he doesn't accept uh, him uh, or his masculinity. But this story um, is a clear expression uh, of the Indian uh, convention of the personhood, uh, of the feminine and uh, masculine, and the expression of masculine uh, as it changes in her. What would you say is the key takeaway from having, or takeaways, I should say, from having looked at all these journeys? Um, The key takeaway... (laughs) I hope uh, people would understand this different understanding of gender uh, in Indian philosophy and India, Uh, different understanding of personhood and uh, different understanding of body-mind complex. Uh, And and another uh, aspect uh, is that the feminine leaders and feminine divine were not fully understood, I, I, I think. Um, they were only partially understood. Um, most of these journeys, uh, for example, 
uh, they would not be complete and they would not be these journeys if the women were not there uh, for example um, nala would not have come home if damayanti was not there the mahabharata would not have turned this way if uh, draupadi was not there draupadi and her family her brothers shikandin and uh, you know drishtadyumna were were an important part of mahabharata war um and similarly uh, of course if kunti was not there you know it would have been a different uh, story it would not have happened um and um of course shakuntala you, you can say this about every one of them uh, savitri if savitri was not there satyavan would not have come home so the stories are very important uh, the female characters are central and the feminine leaders uh, had the freedom of choice to to think as well as express themselves in the way that was uh, suited to them that was uh, good for them uh which means you know the swatantrata they have the swatantrata to be themselves uh without without having any limitations um and they had the freedom um you know it was thought that uh, the ashramas were developed with uh, men uh, in mind but uh, if you read these stories um women were part of these ashrama stages they were taking you know uh, sanyasa they were also following these ethics uh, they were also getting educated and you would see many women uh, as part of the ashramas you know the gautama ashrama and shakuntala story and all that um so a, a number of takeaways on uh, women's life how they lived and how they have uh, independence independence of choice uh and also the concept the concept of uh, gender and femininity and masculinity as it is understood uh, in indian philosophy so i think these are the main takeaways to see these stories from the mahabharata as uh, evidencing an historical reality or do you see them as evidencing uh, an imaginary or or sort of a do, do you believe uh, do you take these stories as indicative of what women behind the world of the text were actually doing perhaps or do you take them primarily as um the, the how they may have been idealized or imagined this is a question we all uh, it is a question with, right <laughs> all all hindu scholars all hindu scholars that are involved with the textual studies you know how far we can take it as you know fact um um th- there are of course discussions i don't launch into the discussion on uh, textual aspects and how far we can take it as a fact because you know i'm focusing on understanding the life journeys of the women uh, and general perceptions and i am trying to do this in you know 200 or 250 pages so i don't launch into too many discussions but others have done it others have said uh, mahabharata preserves uh, strong female roles female leaders female uh, journeys so others have thought uh, even though women were not mentioned as composers 
probably they were close by. So the composition stayed uh, true to uh, what they were, even though they may have been edited a little bit. Uh, but uh, women's roles remained uh, strong enough, did not undergo too much uh, editorial exorcism. <laughs> so, you know, so it remained a little bit true to uh, what it was. Because probably women were part of or either stayed close to the compositions. So this is what most of the other scholars have said. I haven't, I haven't indulged in a textual, you know, history or criticism. So I imagine that you quite enjoyed each and every one of these uh, feminine figures. But tell us which which one or two chapters did you find most compelling or most illumining or let's foreground a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, the, 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 the nuts and bolts of your work. Pick a chapter we can dive into. I love all of them, but uh, I, I like Damayanti a lot. <laughs> and why do you like Damayanti so much? No. What is it about Damayanti that you like? Damayanti. What is it that you show about Damayanti? Damayanti is, you know, um, uh, of course, written as a uh, character, you know, uh, like a story in the Mahabharata, but uh, she still forms part of uh, culture in India. And uh, Damayanti is the story that I learned from my mother and remember a lot. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I come from, you know, um, Central India, uh, which is on the borders of Vidarbha. <laughs> so she is, you know, uh, Vaidarbi. Uh, the the daughter of Vidarbha. So the so the her story is very commonly heard uh, in in you know uh, in these regions. So uh, but her story of course is recollected in many stories, uh, many other genre you know. Uh, and I recently heard it uh, in you know in the folk genre also. Um, very interesting story. So 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 my point is, uh, her story is is not just a story. It has become part of life. Uh, in many parts of India, uh, to remain still a part of folk culture, still a part of uh, folk uh, genre, uh, and still be recollected as a story, and still be recollected as a woman of this place, you know, probably happened many generations ago. But she has the most historical provenance. And I like her because <laughs> she is the innocent, <laughs> the naive, <laughs> And quiet woman, you know, she's not like Draupadi. She's not going to say, you know, oh, I'm going to come get you. You know, she doesn't say that. She's quiet. At the same time, she does what is needed. You know, she doesn't want to leave Nala, but she tells him, you know, I'm going to support you no matter what. He leaves, but, you know, she keeps her word. She finds him, she brings him back, she brings him back to senses. All this she does with her presence of mind and without being, you know, <laughs> um, without showing it as, you know, kind of like a heroic effort. Like she's the simple, naive woman, even in the last chapter of her life. She does everything, but she does it in a simple way. It's a different kind of strength, isn't it? It's very yeah. powerful. Yeah, silent strength, you know. So she, she amazes, <laughs> amazes everybody. So you prefer silent strength over the sass of Draupadi. <laughs> uh, okay. 
good to know <laughs> kunti is similar to you know kunti doesn't express but you know you know what she wants and her children and everybody around her uh, know what she wants so what is it about this silent strength that you think is more favorable or desirable do you, do you believe that it's present, presented that way in the text or is it that you personally are more drawn to it maybe i i am personally drawn to it because i think the text presented uh, the expression of femininity in the number of ways that uh, it presented just to show that you know the expression of femininity the expression of personhood in any aspect is right not nothing is you know uh, prohibited um so so it's wish it's a wrong question in history to ask why or you know why they did this or why it is like this you know we can only understand how this happened and how it is represented so the way it is represented the text shows different expressions of femininity uh, of course we might be drawn uh, to one or the other expression of uh, personhood as it is seen uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, another expression of femininity is not right right i am i am i am equally uh, enchanted by all these different expressions of uh, femininity um draupadi of course you know fascinating <laughs> who who can forget her uh, you know if they hear about her story once you cannot forget her um she is uh, such uh, brave at, at the same time you know an enchanting woman uh, so she's certainly a compelling character yeah. now if someone were to say to you um or let's just say would you agree with the notion that female characters are marginalized in the mahabharata just say to that there is some editing probably might have happened uh in some sections um but i don't think it uh, completely erased their character so they still remain strong uh and i think in this aspect most of the other scholars would also agree with me uh, that mahabharata preserves strong female characters even though they are subjected to some uh, some kind of changes but minimal changes they they don't really affect their character uh, a lot uh, you might see you know small uh, small editorial you know insertions here and there but um, i don't think they 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 fully affected their uh, character and do you think they seem weak to you i i don't think uh, amba looks weak or draupadi looks weak or uh, damanti looks weak or... well, i think weakness is one one characteristic the 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 question was pertaining to marginalization so certainly in my view yeah. there's no shortage of strong female characters in the in in yeah. the sanskrit epics without question yeah um uh sita is eloquent sagesha she schools rama at every turn yeah uh, draupadi all the more with her sass and insistence yeah um uh, so no but the question is yeah. you know we have this notion 
um, on behalf of lay people reading the texts, uh, even scholars and students of women being marginalized in these um, in these overtly patriarchal works. And it seems to me that you may have a different or more nuanced position than most, which is why I bring to you this question of, well, you know, are women marginalized in the mob art, would you say? Uh, women or female characters? Probably somewhat might have been done, but still it had, hadn't erased their character. Um, their, their strengths and their character uh, remain strong. Um, for example, you know, yeah, Savitri, Damayanti, Kunti. Uh, of course, there are some some sentences here and there, uh, but doesn't really change their character a lot. Could you say a bit about the role of the forest in Forest Exile? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> you know, when I first read these stories closely, you know, when you hear them, you don't really notice, you know, you're just hearing the whole story from someone. So, you know. <laughs> but when I closely read them, every one of them, there is forest, there is exile and forest repeatedly in some stories. Uh, and some stories like Urashi, you know, she appears in the forest and the nature, uh, the, the, the wind, you know, the symbolism is more obvious uh, in celestial moments. So, you know, um, it, it, it's always there. So, so one aspect, I think, uh, is uh, the consideration that uh, femininity is in sync with nature. Right, the, the expression of nature is as spontaneous as, um, as you know, sometimes it might be, you know, uh, scary, but, you know, most of the time it's pleasant. So as pleasant and as scary uh, as the nature can be. So, uh, and also the cyclical nature of the nature is also um, considered to be in sync with the uh, feminine nature. You know, that's that's the reason uh, Indian text, classical text, philosophy uh, often uh, identify uh, feminine with the, with the nature, with the prakriti. Um, and her journeys, um, uh, very, I don't see any exception. I, all of the women uh, go through this forest exile and also go through uh, the life begin sometimes begins in the forest or sometimes ends in the forest. So um, I really think it symbolizes um, the, the journey uh, of the women and their close affinity uh, with nature uh, and expressed in almost all the stories. Uh, so for, for male characters, for, for um, any uh, masculine characters that are uh, narrated in Mahabharata and other classical texts, uh, it's always narrated as the written, uh, as, the, as the success, uh, as, the, as the real um, part of the life. But for women, uh, for any of the women that we studied in this book, the, the journey, the exile is the central part of life. How they go through this journey and then how they successfully face this exile and come out of it, that's the crux of their life. So, so journey is the, is the success, not the return. And it's almost always a forest journey, isn't it? Forest journey, <laughs> almost always. 
<laughs> Perhaps we can retitle the book "Feminine Forest Journeys of the Mob." And Madhavi, of course, you know, stops her life halfway to go into the forest. <laughs> no, it's such an important theme. It it really, to me, this idea of of royals in the forest. This is you know, this play between poverty and liberty. You know, this is this tension, this right. tension of Hinduism. Really, it seems to me um, fascinating. Who might be interested in this book? Um, I think all the academics that study these subjects closely and the Mahabharata all, closely. All, all 12 of us. Okay, beyond the 12 of us. Okay, actually, it's Mahabharata. Maybe 22. Beyond the 22. We even sleep on the Mahabharata. So. <laughs> For us, it's fascinating and interesting. <laughs> and in addition to the, you know, to to the to our uh, quarter, you know, there is there is also uh, a general interest uh, among the among the um, among many, you know. Uh, even though they haven't been to the graduate school and all that, there is an interest in the Mahabharata. There is an interest in the stories, uh, and there is an interest to learn. Um, about gender, the the true nature of gender and how it is expressed in classical texts and what it means uh, from classical Indian understanding. So, so this might be also uh, an interesting read uh, for the general reader. Uh, I actually wrote it in a simple. Um, I stayed away from from you know classical literary uh, textual terms of words we use. Yeah. I stayed away from all terminology and theories and, you know, so I wrote it in a real simple um, way so that, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting and useful for us, but at the same time, it's also useful for anyone interested in reading it. You know, to me, that's the absolute sweet spot, good scholarship written accessibly. And I find that without really consciously trying that something I come up against whether teaching continuing studies, whether uh, teaching online courses, whether you know you name it, it th- that's the sweet spot. You know, there's um the the, the audience that you were talking about who might be interested in this. Obviously, specialists clearly, and obviously, probably most interested in South Asia in some sense, or who study it. But there there is a there is a huge audience of lifelong learners of continuing studies um, students. Some of them study at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies with us. Um, there's a new course on the Mahabharata coming out. There's an existing one on the epics, but they often have questions, questions pertaining to the role of women. Um, it's great to say, oh, there's this really accessible piece of scholarship. Check this out. This might help to broaden your view or to assuage your concern or, or whatever's coming up or, you know, to, to deepen your knowledge on the, on the subject. So it's, it's really interesting to me that without trying, <laughs> I taught continuing studies at the University of Toronto for ten years, and now I do so at the OCHS. But but everything from even the, this podcast itself it fell into my lap. It started off as a favor and then became you know a hobby. Now it's a lifestyle. But it's 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 right at that intersection between. Um, you know, the ivory tower and the interested public, right? And I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. We, we're all thankful you're doing it, Raj, you know. Um, you're trying to bridge this gap between academia and uh, the general 
uh, readers or general interested uh, public who want to know these subjects and study more. Well, I'm glad that you're thankful. I speak into a black box in my home office in, in Midtown Toronto in between, you know, you know, real work. <laughs> Although obviously this is work and I love it. It's labor of love. Um, and so you never quite know what's on the other end of the black box, but I'm, I'm glad that scholars are valuing it. That's great. Um, yeah. Is there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on before we close today? Um. I think we touched on all aspects of the book, on the journeys and everything. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. And thank you. Great. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Lavanya Vemsani on her brand new 2021 Palgrave Macmillan uh, publication, Feminine Journeys of the Mahabharata, Hindu Women in History, Text, and Practice. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating feminine figures uh, in ancient Indian epics. Take care.